Prestige listeners, it's Derek. I'm joined as always by my friend and comrade Danny Bessner, and we are uh, very uh, happy and lucky to welcome back to the program uh, returning champion Greg Brew. Uh, Greg is an analyst at the uh, Eurasia Group. He is uh, the author of a couple of books. We talked about one of them uh, last time you were on the program, but today we're going to talk a little bit about uh, your book, Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War. Uh, Greg, inexplicably, you came back. Thanks for that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, thanks, Derek. Uh, thanks so much for having me back on. Sucker. That's all I can say. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so um, th- these books sort of make a good set. They they kind of, you know, pick up your, your the, this book picks up. Um, it covers some of the same material as the the previous one, but then it picks up uh, and goes beyond that. Um, but can you talk a little bit? Let's just talk in, in general terms, maybe about what you were after in in writing this book. Sure thing. So yeah, as you mentioned, uh, the two books. I know it can be confusing to have two books out at the same time, and they do cover similar terrain. Um, but this book has a much more much broader scope. Um, this book is really focused on exploring the origins of Iran as a petrostate, uh, as in a state dependent on the production and export of oil and the wealth that that creates. Uh, and it's also an exploration of the origins of the U.S. alliance with Iran during the Cold War. So it covers a period from about 1941 uh, to about 1965, and it charts the rise of uh, the U.S. alliance with uh, Iran, the rise of the Pahavi petrostate or the petrostate of the Shah, It covers some of the most important uh, events and developments of uh, modern Iranian history of the 20th century, including the oil and nationalization crisis of 1951, the coup of 1953, which we talked a little bit about uh, or quite a lot about last time. Um, But it also goes into great detail about uh, the Shah's consolidation of power in the 1950s, his relationship with U.S. oil companies, and uh, more importantly, uh, or as importantly, American developmentalists companies and NGOs that came to Iran in the 50s and 60s and tried to harness Iran's oil wealth into projects of economic development. Uh, so it covers a much broad, a much more uh, broader scope and wider terrain uh, than my other book, but does touch on some of the, the same themes. So let's go back a bit. And I know, as you mentioned, we talked uh, quite a bit about Mossadegh and the the coup in, in your last appearance. I don't want to retread that ground, but I do think there's some room to talk about the early years uh, of the U.S. relationship with Iran in a period where uh, there's a lot of th- things happening geopolitically. Iran has historically been a, a British in, within the British sphere of influence or the British and Russian sphere of influence for for a while. Um, by the 1940s, clearly, you know, it's in it's in British sphere of influence, and and Britain is only very slowly coming to the, the the understanding that it doesn't run a global empire anymore and that it's about to hand things off to the United States. Uh, so there's a lot of, I think, interesting baggage that goes along with uh, the U.S. developing uh, relationships and, and involvements 
uh, in parts of the world that had hitherto been British. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the early dynamics of the relationship in the in the forties, and then you know leading and leading up to the coup? Again, I don't want to talk about about the coup, but it is a a factor. Sure thing. So yeah, it, it's it's precisely as you as you put it. The United States. You know, it's around. It has relations with Iran uh, in the first half of the 20th century. A lot of them come through things like uh, missionary work. Um, American businessmen come to Iran, particularly from American oil companies. They're interested in searching for oil in Iran. They don't have a whole lot of success because Iran, as I mentioned last time, as we've explored, uh, Iran in the first half of the 20th century, Iranian oil was controlled by a British oil company. Uh, and so Americans, they came sniffing around for concessions, but they didn't have a whole lot of success. Things really start to change in the 1940s. In 1941, in August of 1941, Iran is invaded by the British and the Soviet Union. Uh, the Iranian government of Reza Shah, the first Pahlavi Shah, this government is overthrown and Iran is occupied. Uh, it's, it's set, it becomes an occupied state uh, by the British and the Soviet armies. Uh, there are various sort of destructive trends that happen as a result of this invasion and occupation. Iran passes through a period of profound internal, economic, political, social crisis. The government is very weak. The new Shah, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, is very young, relatively inexperienced. Um, and the United States enters Iran, or rather is invited into Iran, during this moment of profound crisis. And initially, U.S. interests in Iran are fairly narrow. The United States is concerned with Iran from a strategic point of view, uh, the reason the British and the Soviets invade Iran is to uh, maintain a supply line from the Persian Gulf to the Eastern Front, the so-called Persian Corridor. Uh, it's one of the most important supply routes uh, during the entire war. It's a, a route through which the Soviets receive enormous amounts of uh, U.S. aid and also oil um, that is used in the war effort. So the United States is very concerned about maintaining the supply route, and they're worried about internal conditions in Iran. They're worried about the relatively weak Iranian government. So from 1941 to about 1945-46, the U.S. interest in Iran is fairly narrow. It's focused on maintaining the supply route, assisting with Iran's economic reconstruction, uh, but mostly with a view towards maintaining this route. Now, at the same time, there are other concerns developing. Uh, one of these concerns is American interest in Iranian oil. As I mentioned before, American businessmen had been coming to Iran for, for quite a while, looking for uh looking for oil concessions or, or interested in breaking into the Iranian oil industry. This starts up again in 1944. American companies come to Iran and they start competing with British companies for an oil concession. And the U.S. government's attitude about this is, is sort of laissez-faire. It's kind of like, well, you know, we're interested in securing additional sources of oil. We don't want to favor one company over the other. It's kind of a confused sort of hands-off approach. And it ends up ending in crisis because in late 1944, as the Americans and British are negotiating with the Iranian government, the Soviet Union enters the arena and says, well, if the Americans are going to get an oil concession, we want one too. And we want one in northern Iran, particularly in the Azerbaijan region. And this sets off alarm bells, uh, not only in Washington, but also in Tehran. The Iranian government becomes very concerned that as they invite the Americans in, as they try to get American influence to increase, as they try to get American assistance and support, that's only going to invite increased Soviet intervention. And we, they don't want that. So cut to 1946. Uh, the Azerbaijan crisis, as it is known, is one of the most important early Cold War episodes. Uh, the war ends. British and American forces leave Iran. But Soviet forces remain. 
Uh, they occupy the five northern provinces of Iran, and they refuse to leave unless they receive that oil concession that they asked for in 1944. And for the United States, this confirms several pre-existing fears. It confirms their fear that Iran is a state that is threatened by Soviet influence. The Soviets want to extend their their power, their domination over Iran. Uh, and, and that's a bad thing, obviously. But it's also a concern that the Americans I have. I mean, it goes without saying. It's a bad yeah. thing. It's the well, Soviets. I mean, come on. Well, from the American point of view, obviously. <laughs> uh, but it gets even bigger than that, right? You know, like like Soviet influence extending over places like Poland and Eastern Europe. That's one thing. But if the Soviets want a permanent presence in northern Iran, uh, to the point at which they start supporting separatist movements in Azerbaijan, there are brief uh, uh, Azeri and Kurdish independent republics that declare themselves in northern Iran, and they do so with Soviet support. And the Americans, the United States, uh, is very, very concerned about this, not only because they want to maintain Iranian territorial integrity, and they see Iran as a state threatened by Soviet influence and communism, but they're also concerned that if the Soviets get a foothold in Iran, that will threaten the oil of the greater Middle East, right? So if, if Iran falls to Soviet influence, that therefore threatens American oil concessions in Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Iraq. This is a theme we've touched on, uh, you know, I think every time I've appeared on your show, this idea in the early Cold War that the United States, very interested in maintaining access to Middle East oil, not only for American consumption, but particularly to support the economic reconstruction of Western Europe and Japan. And there's this early instance of domino theory, where Iran, this weak state that shares a 1,500-mile-long border with the Soviet Union, were it to fall, not only would the United States lose access to Iranian oil, um, but it would also potentially lose access to the oil of the greater Middle East. So there's this combination of strategic interest in Iran, but also broader interest in safeguarding the oil resources of the Middle East. And how do you escape? How do you solve this problem? For the United States, in the aftermath of the Azerbaijan crisis, the interest really is in strengthening Iran internally. And this is, you know, most of the literature, a great deal of scholarship on U.S.-Iranian relations in the Cold War emphasizes things like military support, you know, the Shah's famous love, military hardware, his insatiable desire for arms, for weaponry. And that's an important part of the relationship. But what my book really emphasizes is that for the Americans, and really for, for the Shah as well, and for his sort of broader elite-driven government, weaponry, military hardware was a short-term solution. The long-term solution was economic development. Developing Iran's economy, eliminating some of the rampant income inequality, uh, socioeconomic instability, modernizing the economy, modernizing agriculture, developing incipient industries. All of this was seen as being the most important element in maintaining Iran's pro-Western strategic alignment, right? Keeping it out of the Soviet orbit. You do that by accomplishing projects of economic development. How do you pay for it? You pay for it through oil, right? So that's where that's where the book sort of ties these different strands together. You have U.S. strategic concern for Iran. You have U.S. concern for Iranian oil, but also the oil of the broader Middle East. You have the emergence of the global oil industry, and you also have the global development movement, modernization movement, how it's playing out in Iran and elsewhere in the region. The book sort of ties all these strands together and explores them through that throughout the post-war period. I want to get into the the relationship between the Shah and the U.S. after the coup, because this is where you get into all sorts of fascinating 
CIA involvement in creating secret police forces and just wonderful stuff. Um, I, I also want to uh, actually meet the person who came up with domino theory, like the first guy who thought of this, because uh, it, it's really been, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's always led to good things. And, and I, you know, I think he should get more credit than he, uh, he gets. Uh, but anyway, before we do that, can, let's talk a little bit about the person of the Shah, Mohammed Reza Pahlavi. Uh, who is he in this early period? Because part of this story, I think, is a transformation of this guy who's regarded as a lightweight playboy to a guy who really wants to put his foot down and say, no, I'm in charge. You know, I'm not being led around by anybody. And I'm curious in his relationships, you know, how, how does that manifest in terms of his kind of connection with Iran's oil industry and in its relationship uh, with the United States and, and other foreign powers as well? Totally. So the Shah is, you know, he's, he's in many ways the book's most important character. He's there at the beginning and he's certainly there at the end throughout this whole period, 41 to 65. Uh, and it's, as you say, Derek, don't tell me what happens after that. I don't want to be spoiled. Uh, I know, right? That's he's all... still there in 65. I'm sure he was good. And then he, he just, yeah, good. he sticks yeah. around forever. It's a happy ending. Ab- forever absolutely. <laughs> no, that's, that will be covered in, a, in another book that I will hopefully write at some point in the near future. Uh, but sticking to this period, um, it's, it's, as you say, you know, early in his reign in the 1940s and really all the way up until the 1950s, too. Uh, the Shah is in something of a precarious position. You know, he is the Shah. He is the king, the ruler of Iran. But his powers are, uh, you know, they, they are somewhat um, muddy because, you know, prior to the 20th century, Iran was ruled as an absolute monarchy. The Shah had essentially absolute power over the political system. He ruled as an arbitrary dictator for all intents and purposes. This power was in sort of more real politic terms, dependent on a series of alliances with various social classes, the military, the clerics, the aristocrats, other classes in Iranian society. All of that starts to get more complicated in the 20th century when you have Iran's first constitution in 1906, which creates the national parliament or the majlis. The Shah is thereafter considered a constitutional monarch, albeit one with fairly broad powers over the parliamentary process, but who also, and more importantly, uh, acts as commander-in-chief of the military. And that's really where the Shah's power comes from, right? He plays an institutional role in how legislation is drafted, how it gets passed, similar to European monarchs. Uh, That's originally what the Constitution in 1906 was was meant to create, sort of a European-style constitutional monarchy. But the way politics actually functions in Iran throughout most of the Pahlavi period is you have the Shah, first Reza Shah, the 1920s and 30s, and then his son, Mohammad Reza Pahavi, depending on support from the military and from elite figures in Iran's political system to dominate the state and society. Uh, and the Shah is eventually able to do this in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, of course, it all comes crashing down in 79. But early in his reign, his position is more precarious, right? He gets support from the military, but the Iranian military in the 1940s and 50s is fairly small. It's relatively weak. Uh, it is, you know, rife with corruption, uh, incompetence. It's not really a dependable institution. So the Shah has to maneuver for power inside parliament. He has to form alliances with members of Iran's aristocracy, but he's also conscious of finding outside support. And this fits within a broader political tradition in Iran of reaching out to foreign governments. For a long time, it was the Russians and the British 
who supported various governments, various cabinet ministers, prime ministers, etc. For the Shah, from the 40s, really all the way up into the mid-1960s, the United States offered the most potent source of support, both material but also moral. So the Shah was looking to the United States for support, but it was support to buttress his own position, right? The Shah is interested in safeguarding the institution of the monarchy. He's looking out for number one. That's very, very important for understanding the Shah throughout his real, really throughout his entire reign, is that he has these aspirations for modernizing Iran, um, which I believe are sincere. It's hard not to take him seriously when he talks about these kinds of things, about developing Iran's economy, about, you know, he is very interested in doing things like safeguarding forestry. Uh, he had sort of an ecological environmental bent to him very often. Um, but at the same time, he would talk about, you know, acquiring military hardware, acquiring loans from Western banks to build dams, to expand irrigation, to modernize Iranian cities. All of this fits within his own personal worldview, which was that Iran needed to modernize in order to maintain its independence. But on a more gut level, all of this was meant to serve the preservation of and the expansion of the monarch's power within Iran's institutional system. The Shah was consistently, throughout his entire reign, very, very wary of rivals emerging from within Iran's political system, powerful prime ministers, powerful generals, but individuals who could potentially form their own power bases and threaten his position atop Iran's political system. You see this during the Mossadegh period, obviously, but you also see this at other moments, both before and after the coup. The Shah is very conscious of remaining uh, uh, at the top of Iran's political system. And that, uh, that drives a lot of his actions uh, within this period, both uh, in relations to uh, his ties to the United States, but also to his place within uh, Iran's broader political landscape. So let's talk about that relationship as it develops after the coup. The U.S. obviously having uh, gone to some, some lengths to, to, to bring the Shah back, uh, install him as uh, the uh, at least figurehead of a, a military government at this point, but, um, you know, really having taken his side, I guess, if you want to look at the coup as a, a, you know, a clash between the Shah and Mossadegh. Uh, the U.S. isn't going to let this deteriorate again to the point where uh, another coup becomes necessary from Washington's point of view. So as I alluded to earlier, this is uh, the aftermath. In the aftermath of this, you get uh, the, for, the the early formations of what would become Sabak, uh, the CIA kind of helping to construct a security apparatus that would maintain the Shah uh, politically and, um, you know, in other ways, the U.S. is, is looking to bolster the Shah. But you talk about, uh, you know, what happens in this early period, let's say, you know, 53 to 57 or so. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, an interesting, a few interesting points um, that ties a little bit uh, to my other book. Uh, which is uh, on the nationalization coup and, and coup's aftermath more specifically. There, there's an interesting dynamic within the U.S. policymaking group, policymaking community in the lead up to the coup. Whenever they talk about the Shah, uh, they tend to be, they tend to sort of talk down. You know, he's, there's not a whole lot of confidence in the Shah's abilities as a political leader. He's important as a figurehead. He's important as a, uh, a individual around which the opposition can rally. Uh, particularly within the military. There's this idea in 1953 that you know, the best way to carry out a coup in Iran is through the military. That's, that's, that's the CIA playbook that they're developing. It's what they'll do in other countries subsequently. 
But the problem with getting the military to move against Mossadegh is a lot of the military leadership was appointed by Mossadegh. A lot of them have ties to the National Front. So how do you challenge that? You use the Shah, you use his position as commander in chief, his sort of supreme uh, position as this influential, symbolic figure in Iranian society. You use him to rally support. So it's, it's sort of a king's two bodies thing. It's like the, the symbolic representation of the monarchy is more important than the actual monarch. There's one document from the coup, from the lead up to the coup, where uh, the U.S. ambassador to Iran basically says, if the Shah doesn't play ball, he's got a few brothers. Maybe we could turn to one of them. So if this just underscores the fact that leading up to August of 53, there wasn't a whole lot of confidence in the Shah as an individual. That changes sort of remarkably quickly in the aftermath of the coup. You have this swing in discourse, in uh, discussions within the United States in the aftermath of the coup, really, the, you know, the six to eight months following the coup, where suddenly the Shah is treated more seriously as an individual who could dominate Iran's political system, an individual who deserves more specific support. Uh, the prime minister that the U.S. helped put in power in August of 1953, uh, Fazol Zahidi, is a former general, he starts to sort of immediately be sort of pushed aside as a player in the Iranian political system. So within a year of the coup, there's a consensus in the United States that the Shah is in charge. He's calling the shots. And if we're going to back anyone in Iran, we should really back him. And my view is that that's really down to the Shah's doing. You know, the Shah comes back to Iran in 1953 and immediately takes charge. He's almost a different person. It's quite remarkable to see how much more confident, how much more dynamic he becomes after August of 53. Um, leading up until the sort of the subsequent years, 53 towards the end of the 50s, there's this interesting dynamic that starts to take shape between the U.S. and the Shah. So once his power has been sort of consolidated, there's a new oil agreement in 1954. It's clear that Mossadegh, you know, he's been sent into exile. This political organization has been dismembered. Iran's Communist Party, the Tudor Party, that we discussed last, uh, last time, they've been just annihilated. They've been wiped out. The Tudor's gone. Organized communism in Iran is essentially defunct in the 1950s. But the U.S. position quite quickly becomes somewhat ambivalent. A lot of the documents from this period, um, not, not you know, proclamations or, or letters from presidents, but the nitty gritty stuff, State Department memos, telegrams, CIA reports, all of them sound quite uh, pessimistic, really about the odds of the Shah retaining power in the long term. There's a lot of concern that the Shah is fostering uh, uh, a, a culture of corruption, that he's overly concerned in military affairs, that he's not allowing sufficient political reform, uh, that he's, he's sort of living on borrowed time in the 1950s, that he needs to carry out more sort of comprehensive modernization, or he, his rule will collapse, his government will, will fall apart. And it ties into the earlier view of the Shah as somewhat incompetent or somewhat weak, but it really gets to the more sort of structural issue that the United States has in Iran, which is by carrying out the coup of 1953, the United States removes, alienates, cuts itself off from its natural ally in Iran, which was the modernizing middle class political movement that had rallied around Mossadegh. This movement was non-communist. It was modernist in its outlook. Uh, it was, you know, tied to the kinds of things that modernization theorists sort of prescribed as the, the appropriate forces with which the United States should ally. But because the United States, you know, 
backed the Shah rather than Mossadegh in 1953, this leaves the U.S. with no one else to work with, right? If they can't work with the modernizing middle class, they can't work with the nationalists in Iran, that leaves the Shah, the military, the elite, and nobody else. And this is a problem that U.S. analysts, U.S. policymakers recognize very quickly after the coup. We have a serious problem here. Because sooner or later, the Shah's government is going to become unsustainable. His rule is going to fall apart, and then we'll be left with nobody. And it's a problem they recognize in the mid-1950s that they just never solved all the way up into the revolution of 79. It's a constant theme throughout U.S. policymaking discourse when it comes to Iran, is how to surmount this contradiction in how U.S. policy is supposed to work. And they just never come up with a, a solution, and it all blows up in their face. Hello, Prestige Heads. Danny here to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, many of us today are forced to move around the country to go where our lives take us, and that's true for me too. This has made it unsurprisingly somewhat difficult to stay in touch with family members, but Aura Digital Frames has really come to the rescue, especially since I had a baby. I'm able to send my parents and other family members constant updates about my kid's life, which of course allows them to feel more closely connected to both me and more important for them, more closely connected to him. And for those worried about the fact that Aura Digital Frames is a tech adjacent gift, don't worry because it's so easy to start using. I can upload photos right from my phone in just a click. It'll even pair photos together for me. And happily, there's no memory cards, there's no USBs, nothing like that is required. See why Aura was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, the strategist, and Wired. So with Aura, give the perfect gift this holiday. Visit AuraFrames.com today and get $30 off their best-selling frames with the code PRESTIGE. These frames sell out quickly, though, so get yours before they're gone. That's A-U-U. R-A-Frames.com with the promo code PRESTIGE. And as always, terms and conditions apply. What are the U.S. goals in the region and how do they relate to Iran? Because this is famously the era of the Eisenhower Doctrine. So maybe you could place it in a little bit of a regional context. Sure thing. So the Eisenhower Doctrine is, uh, is relevant here. So this idea that you need a strong northern tier of pro-Western states uh, that have a somewhat more militaristic view. You have Turkey, uh, Iran, Pakistan, Iraq, somewhat briefly forms part of this, uh, this policy. But the idea is that these pro-Western states in the Middle East's northern tier will protect the rest of the region from Soviet influence or communist uh, infiltration. It doesn't really work. It, it kind of falls apart by the end of the Eisenhower period. But it does inform the U.S. Uh, position on Iran, and it gets to the contradiction that I just noted, which is that you know they they understand long term Iran needs economic support, development support. It needs progress and reform. But in the short term, what they're really interested in doing is buttressing the Shah's power and particularly supporting Iran's military, right? Because it serves part of this broader regional uh, U.S. policy, which emphasizes building up regional militaries to try to balance the Soviet threat. And the Shah uses this to his advantage, right? He draws uh, military support. He draws concessions from the United States. By the end of the 1950s, he flirts with uh, turning towards the Soviets. He, he, you know, has meetings with Soviet leaders. He talks about, you know, maybe making an arms deal with the Soviet Union. All of this is to posture and position himself for more U.S. support. 
and he succeeds. He gets what he wants, uh, not only in the 1950s, but later in the 60s. The Shah is able to maneuver within the global Cold War for advantage. Again, as I noted, to support his own position, support his own kind of dominance within Iran's political system. The Cold War is an important feature of that. But again, the Shah is also, you know, he's an avowed anti-communist. He hates the Soviets. He hates communism. Uh, and he does want to work with the, the United States regionally. Uh, but a lot of it is very self-serving. A lot of it is, uh, is serving his own particular interests. We're sort of leading up to the White Revolution in 1963, but I, I want to talk about uh, what efforts the Shah made in this period in the sort of mid to late 50s in terms of development, in terms of strengthening uh, Iran economically, using oil revenue to to kind of reinvest in uh, in Iran. And what kind of advice is he getting from uh, people in the U.S. Uh, at this point in, in that particular area? Totally. So this is something the book is sort of uh, deeply concerned with. It's probably the one, one of the more fascinating elements that I uncovered in the research for the book is Iran's development plan in the immediate aftermath of the coup leading up to the White Revolution. And it's dominated by the second seven-year plan, which is an economic program that's rolled out in 1956. Uh, it's budgeted at around a billion dollars, uh, and it's meant to use oil revenues to fund a variety of different economic development programs. It's kind of a hodgepodge. It's a cluster of different initiatives. There's really no organizing principle around it. It's kind of just whatever the Shah's government thinks is worth doing, they decide to do. Um, although a lot of it is based on you know, building out Iran's infrastructure, developing its internal you know, transportation network, roads, ports, railroads, that sort of thing, bridges. They build a lot of bridges. Uh, but as far as sort of a broader um, ideology of economic development, um, the Shah's program is led, is dominated by a single personality. Uh, the, this is the plan director, Abdul Hussein Ebtahaj, who's a large character in the book. He's a pretty significant figure in the history of Iran's uh, economic development and the history and the economic history of Iran more broadly. Ebtahaj is a pretty huge, huge personality. And Ebtahaj adopts modernization theory. He adopts the idea that you need a big push. You need to put a lot of public revenue, public uh, state support behind big programs of development to drive the economy forward, to create self-sustaining growth. That's really his, his sort of economic ideology is borrowed from the post-war economic development literature. Um, but at the same time, he is a Patavi political animal, and he is acting within the Shah's uh, government, and he's a Patavi loyalist. You know, he wants to retain his position within the Patavi state. So Iran's economic development program in the 1950s and early 60s, it has an economic ideology guiding it. But at the same time, it's a political program designed to support the prestige and the stability of the Pahlavi state in the aftermath of the coup. This is something that the Shah is personally very concerned with. He is aware that he lacks legitimacy after 1953, and he wants to restore that legitimacy through big, grandiose development projects, dams, irrigation projects, big construction endeavors that Pahlavi propaganda can, you know, they can put out big splashy pamphlets and newspaper articles about how great the Shah is, about how it's developing Iran quickly and all. So a lot of that is coming from Eptahaj, but there are Americans involved in this too. And the Americans kind of fit in uh, a couple of different camps. On the one hand, you have the technicians, the experts, if you like, the, uh, the engineers who are coming from nonprofits like the Ford Foundation. They're coming from Harvard University. 
Uh, there is, uh, for a period of time, a team of Harvard economists who worked with Eptahaj within the Iranian government, writing reports, supplying analysis. And their view tends to be, these big projects are pointless. They don't accomplish anything. What you need is small-scale rural development. You need to go into the villages. You need to improve living conditions. You also need to land reform, right? Iran's agricultural system, really its entire socio-political system at this point, is dominated by a small aristocratic elite who control large estates. And the estates in the provinces dominate the agricultural economy of Iran, which is the broader economy. Iran is still very much an agricultural state in the mid-20th century. And so when these Americans come in from the Ford Foundation or Harvard University, and also from Point Four, right? Point Four has a pretty big uh, presence. This is the sort of the U.S. government's uh, development technical cooperation program. All of them come to Iran. A lot of them come to Iran in the 50s. And they see this socioeconomic system and they think, we need to dismantle it. We need to break this apart. And we need to carry out land reform. And the problem that the Shah has with that is that after the coup, he is dependent on these elites for support. He needs their support. He needs their backing in order to maintain his shaky post-coup position. So that's one group, these experts coming from NGOs. The other side, you have the, uh, the big push, big thinker, big development types like David Lilienthal. Lilienthal, who of course was you know, famously the father of the TBA, one of the most important New Deal projects in the United States. He comes to Iran in the mid-50s and he says, he says to Eptahaj, I want to recreate the TVA in Iran. I want to build 15 connected dams in southwestern Iran. I want to revolutionize Iranian agriculture. I want to create you know, a sugar industry. I want to create a petrochemical complex. I want to connect power lines. I want to, I want to do all of this on a massive scale. And Eptahaj and the Shah, they see this proposal and they think, this is perfect. If we can do this, we can accomplish the goals that we're setting out to do. We can burnish the regime's prestige. So from about 1956 to 1962, Lilienthal runs one of the largest uh, and most expensive projects within the second plan, the Khuzestan Development Service. And the book explores this uh, in detail in, in, in one of the chapters. It doesn't really work out. A lot of the money gets wasted. Lilienthal has to scale back the project to just one dam. The irrigation project becomes just a pilot project. So a lot of these sort of big ambitions don't really go anywhere. But they do illustrate the clashes of personalities. They illustrate the contradictions that uh, emerge within Iran's development project, not only within the Iranian government, but also within the community of, of American developmentalists who come to Iran with different ideas about what development looks like, how it can be carried out, and how it can serve not only the goals of the Pahlavi state, but also the strategic goals of the United States. Can we take another step back to the, the regional level and talk about the Shah as America's guy in the Middle East or in the Persian Gulf? What is the relationship that he has to the l larger U.S. geopolitical project in the region? So the Shah is in an uncomfortable position. Um, on the one hand, he recognizes that he depends on the United States for support. You know, he needed the United States to come to power in 1953. He needed the U.S. before 1953, before 1951, uh, to consolidate power to hold on to his position in the aftermath of World War II. So he's, he's kind of always had this relationship with the United States. Um, 
at the same time, the Shah, in the aftermath of the coup, as I mentioned, he's concerned about his legitimacy. He's concerned about his position inside Iran. But that connects to his concern with his broader regional position. He doesn't want to look like an American stooge. This comes up again and again, you know, in the Shah's biographies, but also in documents from this period. The Shah wants to act as an independent power. He wants an independent Iranian foreign policy, but one from which he can draw material support from the United States, particularly weapons. Right? He needs U.S. hardware to modernize his military. So as far as you know, U.S. regional policy is concerned, Iran is an important part in that policy. But Iran is uh, quite often a problematic actor because of the Shah's desire to develop an independent foreign policy. So you have things like, you know, what I mentioned before, uh, towards the end of the 1950s, the Shah starts to reach out to the Soviets. He starts to try, he attempts to have slightly better relations with the Soviet Union. Uh, he, in the early 1960s, he pledges not to allow either the Soviets or the United States to base nuclear missiles on Iranian terrain. That's being, that's seen at the time as the Shah's attempt to, you know, to try to find a more independent foreign policy. At the same time, however, his alliance with the United States is very strong. And this is illustrated by things like, you know, he permits the CIA to establish listening posts on Iranian territory. These listening posts are extremely secret. Uh, nobody really knows about them. Even subsequently, it took years for documents about their existence to become declassified. But these posts are close to Iran's border with the Soviet Union, and they allow the CIA to monitor Soviet nuclear tests that happen inside Soviet territory. So the CIA regards these posts as being extremely important, and they're only possible because the Shah allows them to exist. So anytime, you know, various presidential administrations in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s, anytime they start to get frustrated with the Shah, or they start to become, you know, irritated by his constant demands for support, for weaponry, things of that nature, you have CIA directors emerging from the background saying, yes, but we need the Shah's support. These listening posts are very important. The Shah is an important ally. We should try to make him happy. And that becomes kind of the dominant theme in U.S.-Iranian relations in the second half of the 1960s, in the period that the, the book doesn't cover, but which it sort of alludes to. Eventually, you get a point where the U.S. becomes more concerned with keeping the Shah happy than with pushing reform or development or any of these sort of longer-term programs inside Iran. They become much more concerned with short-term issues and with making sure that the Shah continues to act in a support capacity for broader you know, U.S. You know, regional security policy. That becomes the more important factor in the U.S.-Iran relationship. So as we get into the early 1960s, and again, we're sort of coming up on the White Revolution, which is, I think, the major event of this period. Uh, where do things stand in Iran economically? What is the What are you, people in the U.S. talking about with respect to the Shah? Uh, are they concerned? Are they sort of, you know, letting him cook? What, what's you know, What's the attitude uh, as as you know people are observing events in Iran on the verge of uh, this very momentous development? So in 1960, Eisenhower is still president. And the second development plan that I mentioned before, sort of Iran's big economic development plan, it runs into crisis in the summer of 1960. Iran's economists, the plan organization, the development experts that uh, advise the Shah, they go to the Shah and they say, 
we're on the brink. We're basically out of money. You know, in a, another two months of development activity, another two months of military purchases, and we're going to drain whatever's left of our foreign exchange balances, and we're going to we're going to experience a foreign exchange crisis. So we need to do something about that. And the Shah, to his credit, listens to this advice, and the Iran accepts an IMF bailout in 1960. This is something that generally doesn't get a whole lot of attention in the literature, but to my view, it's an incredibly important moment in uh, Iran's history. The Shah scales back the second uh, plan, he pulls back on funding, he cuts funding to some other programs and accepts about $35 million in standby credits from the IMF. He also accepts additional economic credits from the United States because Iran suffers a financial crisis in 1960 and 1961. And the Eisenhower administration, they see this, they watch this happen, and their position is, this is it. This is the crisis that we predicted in 1953. This is the Shah running out of room. Eventually, we thought this government was going to experience some kind of destabilizing event. This is probably it. And we need to do something about that. So Eisenhower leaves office in early 1961. The Kennedy administration comes to office. And they pick up where the Eisenhower team left off. You know, very often it's, it's argued within the literature that the Kennedy administration came into office with this, this view towards Iran that was new, that was challenging pre-existing notions. But if you look at the documents, you can see the, the seeds of this in the late Eisenhower period. This position that the Kennedy administration takes, which is that the Shah needs to enact reforms. He needs to fundamentally change the nature of his rule, or Iran is going to experience a profound crisis. Uh, I call it the collapse narrative. It's an important part of the nationalization crisis and coup, but it's also you know a recurring theme. This view that the United States has that Iran is constantly teetering on the verge of some kind of calamity. This view comes back in the early 1960s. And it's communicated to the Shah, both through, you know, U.S. ambassadors and U.S. diplomats, but it's also communicated through these experts, these NGO developmentalists who are in Iran. They go to the Shah and they say, the economic development programs aren't working. They need to be reformed. They need to be rationalized. You need to do something to prevent the collapse of your government. And the Shah takes this and acts on it. And what he does is he exercises, you know, he, he, he carries out a political maneuver in which he appoints a new prime minister in 1961 uh, by the name of Ali Amini. This prime minister has uh, modernist bona fides. He, you know, has connections to the old Mossadegh government, but he's also a royalist. He's, you know, he's loyal to the, the regime. He's loyal to the monarchy. But the most important aspect that Amini has is that he has very, very close relationships with the economic development community, and he's got a very positive relationship with the United States. So the Shah, conscious of growing doubts and criticisms that the United States have, and also conscious of the fact that Iran is passing through a period of profound economic crisis, uh, he acts accordingly and maneuvers himself out of the way and puts Amini at the front of the government to basically take the hit. You know, it's this, it's this very interesting period where you have this a great deal of enthusiasm and support from the Kennedy administration for the Amini government. You also have support from the economic development community. You have support from the planner organization. But what the Shah is doing is essentially putting forward a scapegoat. He's setting Khamenei up to fail, is what happens in 1961. And the Shah, for his part, succeeds. Khamenei lasts a little less than a year. 
Uh, he fails to enact the reforms that he had set out to do. U.S. Uh, opinion of Amini eventually fades. It kind of sours by, uh, by 1962. And Amini tries to cut the budget. He goes to the Shah and he says, I need to cut the military budget. The Shah says, I won't let you do that. And Amini resigns. And suddenly the Shah is able to come back and reassert control over the government, having successfully maneuvered around the crisis. It's, 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 it's actually quite uh, an ingenious, uh, uh, politically savvy move on the part of the Shah. The problem then, however, is that in 1963, he faces a new crisis of what to do. You know, about the, the foreign exchange crisis that occurred in 1961. He's still facing pressure from the United States on the reform front. And the solution that he comes up with is known as the White Revolution. And it's a land reform campaign. As I mentioned before, the Americans have been pushing for land reform for quite a while. The Shah eliminates the traditional landed aristocracy. He breaks apart the large landed estates. He carries out other reforms, including uh, women's suffrage, uh, the creation of a literacy corps for the provinces, a variety of other sort of reformist moves that appear very forward-looking, that appear very sort of modernist and pro-Western. He gets a lot of very positive attention and coverage in the Western press, but he also satisfies American pressure on his regime, on his rule. Uh, he's able to sort of satisfy the American desire to see a Pahlavi reform movement by carrying out the White Revolution. The other interesting wrinkle to this is that by 1963, this idea within the United States, this idea within the Kennedy administration that you could foster real progressive reform in Iran, this belief had itself kind of evaporated. There's a number of very interesting documents and memos from 1963 around the time that the Shah launches the White Revolution, uh, where various Kennedy administration officials, uh, Ken Hansen, Bob Homer, uh, Dean Rusk, they all kind of ask themselves, you know, is this, is this legitimate? Is this the real deal? No, is the Shah actually carrying out reform? And the consensus ends up being, it doesn't matter, so long as it maintains his position. And more importantly, Dean Rusk writes this in, 19, in mid-1963, the United States is not in a position to pressure him either way. We should recognize our limitations. We should recognize the Shah as the dominant political personality in Iran. We should do what we can to support him, but we should no longer see uh, political reform or major development or modernization as something that we can accomplish from the outside. Uh, so it's this, uh, it, it comes at the end of the book, and it's kind of a turning point uh, for the United States relationship with Iran. This pressure that had been present really in 1941, at the beginning of this period, this pressure that had been present from the United States on the Shah to reform, to develop, to carry out these programs that pressure kind of evaporates. It goes away. And suddenly the relationship becomes more uh, limited, becomes kind of more narrow, more confined, and really becomes focused on making the Shah happy, making sure that the Shah is getting the support that he feels he needs. And as far as Iran carrying out political reform, the position after 1965 is, you know, it'll be great if it happens, but we're not going to hold our breath, right? It's the, the, there's an, an agreement to just sort of be happy with the status quo, that the Shah is the best of limited options. So the White Revolution, you know, the argument of the book is that internally within Iran, it's a very successful political program. It uh, strengthens the position of the Shah. It eliminates important points of opposition. It creates new points of opposition, most importantly within the Shia clerics. Uh, that's sort of a, 
foreshadowing of the events of 1979. The clerics are the ones who opposed the white revolution most aggressively, led by Rojola Khomeini. But the Shah isn't too worried about that. It's also a successful, I know. Well, you know I mean, what could go wrong? What I, could know. go wrong, right? Uh, you know, we're going to make all the clerics furious with us. It's, it, it's fine. That won't be a problem. But it is. It's a successful political program. As a program of economic development, it's a pretty dismal failure. Right? The wet revolution creates instability. It creates chaos in the provinces. The Shah gets bailed out, essentially, because Iran's oil revenues increased quite dramatically in 1964-65, which the book also covers. But the really, the really important impact of the White Revolution is how it resolves this long-running uh, dispute, this long-running contradiction in the Shah's relationship with the United States. It resolves this concern that the U.S. had had in the stability of the Shah's regime going back to the 1940s. Uh, and it leaves them in, from a position where they, they accept the Shah's dominance, they accept his role as a U.S. partner and the need to keep him happy, and they ease back on pressuring the Shah to enact serious political reforms or really to enact economic development programs that meet with U.S. Uh, support. They kind of, they, they let him do his thing after 1965. And uh, we all know how it turns out. Great. It turns out great. Uh, yeah, great. Don't Smashes ask any stuff. questions. Anybody. No, no follow-up. So maybe this is a good place to, to leave off in advance of when you publish your next book, and we will undoubtedly have you on the show to talk about that. Uh, but t can you talk a little bit about the uh, emergence of this clerical opposition, uh, specifically Khomeini, who hitherto was really not all that well known, but emerges, you know, as the the great opponent of the White Revolution and gains, you know, tremendous following. Um, leading up to this point, where you know the the sh some Shia clerics are. are very political, others are not, but but it's sort of in the background. Uh, it, it foregrounds then in 1963. But is there any discussion uh, in the U.S. about what to do with the religious elite in Iran, or what could be done with the religious elite in Iran? And I think about this in terms of something you said earlier that the U.S. never really found a replacement for uh, the sort of secular. Uh, liberal elites that it, it alienated with the the Mossadegh coup. Uh, so it never had a fallback from the Shah after that. I, I'm kind of curious whether there's any discussion of maybe we can work with these guys. They're religious. It's not Christianity, but they're religious, which is, you know, in contrast with the, the godless atheist Soviets. Uh, you know, maybe these are people that we could we could work with and develop. Uh, and And why basically the United States never manages to make inroads with anybody, not just the the, the clerics, but with anybody uh, as an alternative to the Shah or as a backup plan. Sure. So, you know, you make a good point. I mean, the the Shia clerical class, and it is a class. I mean, it's it's an important element of Iran's political and social and economic structure, really, going back to the to the, the 18th century. Um, some of them have been very political, particularly uh, clerics who lead Friday prayer, um, they sort of have the bully pulpit. They have a position from which they can speak to lots of different issues, not just religious issues, but also issues of politics. This is a particularly important theme during the nationalization crisis because a lot of clerics come out and support nationalization. A lot of clerics uh, support Mossadegh's platform as being anti-British, anti-foreign, uh, pro-nationalist, and a lot of Shia clerics within Iran support that kind of program. 
uh, a lot of them turn against Mossadegh and align with the Shah, um, some for personal reasons, some for you know, individual political reasons. Broadly, as a class, they're concerned about Mossadegh's potential connections to the communists. Um, so the Shah is able to support or is able to enjoy support from uh, the, Shia the-, uh, the Shia clerics after the coup because he's so committed to anti-communism. He's also, he also gives them sort of free reign to carry out other things, uh, including uh, pogroms against Iran's religious minorities. In the late 1950s, there are sort of state-sanctioned acts of violence against Baha'i uh, temples and Baha'i businesses inside Iran, uh, which is something that the, the clerical community at the time thought was very important, and the Shah, out of deference to his clerical allies, allowed to take place. But as far as sort of the changes that happened in the 1960s, one of the most important uh, changes is the sort of the leading clerical figure in Iran, the, the Marja Taqlid, the sort of figure of eminence within the clerical community. He dies in 1961, Boro and nobody really replaces him. Uh, and Boro uh, the the Grand Ayatollah, had supported the Shah. Uh, he had acted as kind of the sort of leading figure that fell into the sort of pro-regime camp. He was quietest about it. He was one of these clerics that was less overtly political, but his support was very important to maintaining the Shah's position. He dies in 1961, and there's really no clear replacement for him. There's, there is a new Ayatollah who is supported by the state. Um, but when the right, white revolution is carried out, it infuriates uh, uh, lots of religious figures, Khomeini being one of them, not only because it is modernist, because it, it extends uh, female suffrage, because it carries out other reforms, but also it eliminates land holdings that had been controlled by clerical religious foundations. It gets kind of at their property interests as much as it gets at their sort of political or religious ideological interests. Um, so it, it, Khomeini is able to use that to rile up support against the regime, against the government. And in June of 1963, there are large demonstrations led by Khomeini and other religious figures against the White Revolution, which the Shah puts down with sort of uncharacteristic violence. It's a rare moment in his reign where the Shah sends in the army and says, open fire. You know, the Shah is generally quite reticent to use that kind of brute force. But he does it in June of 63. He puts down the protests. Um, he eventually arrests uh, Khomeini and sends him into exile in uh, uh, a few years later over a separate issue. Khomeini opposes the extension of a status of forces agreement that gives U.S. citizens uh, uh it gives them immunity from Iranian laws. It's particularly focused at U.S. military personnel who are in Iran. The Shah extends protection over these citizens and Khomeini comes out against it and is sent into exile. But what, what the rise of religious opposition to the Shah in the 60s gets at, you mentioned this, is that in the absence of the Mossadegh, in the absence of the more pro-Western, more secular, uh, modernizing middle-class political movement, you do, you have a vacuum that forms within Iran. There are those who support the government. There are those who support the regime, but they make up a relatively small portion of Iran's political society. Most politically active Iranians during the Shah's reign are a little bit more lukewarm towards his government. They're looking for other political movements to support. Uh, some of them fall back into the Mossadegh movement. Some of them join leftist communist organizations, but a lot of them gravitate towards uh, religious and Islamist political organizations. Because in many cases, these Islamist groups have these Islamist, yeah, these Islamist groups have a better claim to legitimacy 
they have a claim towards a political future for Iran that is not emulation of the West, is not Soviet-inspired communism, but appears to be something more grounded in Iranian nationalism and uh, Iranian culture, and that's Islam. So religious Islam emerges from the White Revolution. It emerges from the discontent that is present within Iranian society during the Shah's reign. Uh, And it stumps the United States because while there are U.S. connections with clerics, you know, officials from the embassy, from the CIA, they meet with senior clerics. Uh, They have contacts in the clerical community. But as far as knowing uh, how political Islam is going to function or how it could emerge as a potential alternative to the Shah's form of government, there's really not much of a sense of that. Uh, Even in the aftermath of the revolution in the day, in the month leading up to the hostage crisis in 1979, there's quite a lot of confusion and uncertainty about what Khomeini's political program even is and what political Islam in, in, in Iran would even look like. So the United States never really gets a firm grasp on political Islam as a political movement in Iran. And that continues to cause problems. Uh, are you, are you suggesting that the forward. United States doesn't understand the, the parts of the world that U.S. policymakers do not understand what's going on? all around the world in these places that we're interfering in? Because I, I have to object to that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, yeah, sometimes it causes problems. Uh, well, Greg Brew, we're look, we look forward to your, your next book when uh, the Shah will uh, defeat his enemies by hearkening back to an even earlier tradition, Achaemenid, the Achaemenid Empire. <laughs> uh, just a brilliant stroke of genius. Uh, so we look forward to his eventual victory in the, the third part of the trilogy. Uh, Greg, thank you so much. The book, again, is Petroleum and Progress in Iran, Oil Development and the Cold War. Uh, Thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me on. Thanks.